You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Hank Parker, who holds a PhD in biological oceanography and is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Medicine, where he teaches a course on biological threats to food and agriculture. He formerly served as a senior executive and acting director of Homeland Security for the Agricultural Research Service of USDA and has published and lectured on bio and agroterrorism. He is the author of the new novel Containment, a bioterrorism thriller, which just came out last week. So thank you, Hank, for joining us here on SpyCast. Thank you. So we don't have a lot of fiction authors on SpyCast, and when we do, they're usually ex-spooks who have just written some new kind of spy novel. However, the topic of your book is something that has interest to me, and perhaps the right word isn't interest, it's more of something that frightens me for a long time. And perhaps, in my mind, it only qualifies as a novel because something like it hasn't happened yet. Is bioterrorism something that keeps you up at night? Is that why you decided to write a book like this about it? Yeah. I, in fact, I think it should keep us all up at night. Uh, I got into this, I mean, obviously with a background in biological oceanography, uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, biological threats uh, under the seas. Uh, but uh, I sort of went from that and teaching at a university uh, to working for USDA. I was the aquaculture program coordinator there for a number of years uh, and then had the opportunity to go into the senior executive service and get involved in a lot of other uh, aspects of agricultural research uh, and uh, even uh, security issues uh, as I went on in my career there. Uh, in about 2009, uh, the administrator of the agency at that time had recognized uh, the significant threat, potential threat, to food and agriculture from deliberate acts of terrorism. And uh, I was quite interested in this myself, uh, had the opportunity, uh, I said 2009, I'm sorry, 1999, uh, had the opportunity a year later uh, to spend the better part of a year at the National Defense University as a research fellow, and I focused my research on agroterrorism. Did a lot of uh, investigation at that time, of course this was before 9-11, mm -hmm. 
Uh, and the more I read, uh, the more I got into it, uh, the more I realized, uh, at least from the food and agriculture perspective, uh, that we were exceedingly vulnerable for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I wrote a treatise about this, which was published by National Defense University, came out actually right after 9-11, uh, essentially laying out a proposed approach that the federal government might take uh, to better uh, prepare against, uh, respond to uh, any potential uh, acts uh, directed against food and agriculture. And, uh, and then I uh, went on at USDA in the Agricultural Research Service uh, to uh, ultimately the Acting Director for Homeland Security uh, before I retired uh, in 2005. Uh, I then stayed uh, very interested in this issue, needless to say, uh, and uh, began teaching at Georgetown. I, I teach in a uh, master's program in biological threat agents and emerging infectious diseases uh, in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology uh, at the Medical Center. And I've been teaching that course to really bright, mm -hmm. interested, uh, challenging What's good. Uh, graduate yeah. students, you know, for the last, uh, what, uh, seven, eight, nine years, or whatever it is at this point, and uh, you know, and, and I, I say, and you know, it's really true. I probably learn more from them than they do from from me, mm -hmm. and the reason for that is because these students uh, overwhelmingly go into positions related to national security. They don't go on to become medical doctors mm -hmm. in almost all cases. They go on to positions either in federal agencies or in the private sector that that help help uh, protect the country uh, against, in this case, particularly biological threats. And so they really ask great questions. Uh, they, uh, they have challenging exchanges. I bring in a lot of guest lectures. And the more I have done this, the more I have learned, the more convinced that I am that we are still exceedingly vulnerable uh, on the food and agriculture side. And I'll pause there for a minute if you want to ask anything else, but I could go on a bit more about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we're, we'll certainly work our way through that because I think that's something people don't think about. I mean, mm -hmm. we have our listeners are incredibly well uh, uh, informed about what the different intelligence agencies do, you know, whether it's, this, you know, even the Department of Treasury, Department of Energy, these ones that are part of the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people may not think about is the fact that the IC itself is not the only ones doing national security issues and things like the Department of Agriculture, right? What do you think? You know, I, we're right now we're going through the uh, the cabinet appointments for the new Trump administration, and people care a whole lot about the who's going to run the DOD, who's going to run the State Department, but you don't think, oh, who cares who runs the Agriculture Department? Well, these are really key issues that could be, you know whether cyber terrorism or, or nuclear weapons, but bioterrorism is something people don't think about all that much. And the USDA has a pretty major hand in this that I'm, I'm happy that you're here to talk about because it's something that I, I would like others to understand uh, more than they probably do. What we, what we probably don't appreciate is that before 9-11, uh, agriculture, food and agriculture, was not even recognized as a critical national infrastructure which is astonishing to me because everybody's got to eat, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, agriculture, the food and agriculture system makes up something like one-sixth of our economy, uh, employs, uh, you know, about a sixth of the, uh, of the employment force in, in both the upstream and downstream sides, the production, mm -hmm. processing, distribution, sale, retail, wholesale, export, and all that kind of stuff. It's a huge contributor 
uh, to our economy. But it also inherently uh, embodies a fear factor because there's nothing that probably scares people more than the worry uh, about deliberate contamination of what they put into their mouths. Uh, and then by extension, of course, deliberate contamination of the things that, that go into the production right. of the things that we put into our, our mouths. Well, and this is nothing, I mean, people go, people might think, well, that's a heavy lift for a terrorist. But biowarfare has been around for centuries. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people may know the story of plague victims being catapulted into castles under siege. And, and it and it's different armies, depending on what source you read it from. It's either Alexander the Great or Genghis yeah, yeah. Khan or somebody. Yeah, yeah. But that's one of these basic things. And up until 1972, mm. every developed country on Earth was building biological weapons that could kill millions and millions of people. Right. And I said 1972 because there was a treaty in 1972 that's supposed to ban bioweapons. Mm-hmm. But we know now that the Soviet Union never stopped, mm-hmm. uh, that they continued on. Um, and for anyone living in the D.C. area, I know I, this is a long-winded question, but I'm going to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, right up the street, you have U.S. Amrid, mm-hmm. uh, which is the U.S. Army's Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, mm-hmm. which is working on some of these incredibly horrible diseases. Mm-hmm. My question from that is, based on everything we know in the past about biological weapons, mm-hmm. based on what U.S. Amrid is working on today, mm-hmm. There's no way that we can develop vaccines or cures for every possible bioweapon of the future. Right. right. That That's absolutely true. Uh, I, I'll give you an example from the agriculture side, and then we can mm-hmm. sort of segue into, into the broader uh, issues of, of bioterrorism. Uh, but, you know, what keeps uh, people who are paying attention to the food and agriculture infrastructure, what keeps them awake at night prob- probably more than anything else is the potential uh, outbreak of foot and mouth disease in this country. And, you know, that is a uh, highly contagious disease. There are very few uh, uh, viruses that are, that are more contagious than that. And we know from the UK outbreak in 2001 that it can spread through a country extraordinarily rapidly uh, and, you know, even get well beyond what you might consider to be a containment zone before it's even detected. And so it's virtually impossible to stop uh, once it's gotten out beyond a certain boundary area. There are something like, uh, there are seven uh, uh, serotypes and and over 60 subtypes uh, of this particular virus. And we have been challenged extraordinarily in trying to come up with vaccines that would work across the board. They don't. You have to develop basically a different vaccine, certainly for every subtype. The other problem is these vaccines, once they're administered to an animal, are not distinguishable in the animal from the actual infection. And so that, you know, is an example of the challenges we have in general in coming up with effective vaccines against bioterrorism agents. Is foot and mouth zoonotic? Is that the right word? I think no, it's, it's not zoonotic. Right. zoonotic. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, I think there's been a case or two of a mild infection of a human. It doesn't kill the animal either. It just makes the animal unmarketable, makes it sick, makes it uh, on a, on a Appealing to the market. Uh, what about genetically modified diseases, the well, chimeras? That, that, the... Is, that is the that's the real concern. Yeah, the real concern. So if we, you know, and, and you know, go, going back to what got what sort of triggered my thinking about writing writing this novel uh, is is extrapolating that foot and mouth disease virus 
potential outbreak in the United States, and we modeled this, and we know it would be horrendous if it broke out in this country. I mean, just huge societal issues, breakdown in, in social order. Yeah, I really want to get into that, because that, to me, is one of the most it, interesting it's things. It's very, very scary. Yeah. And, you know, we know, for example, that the, the only policy uh, that's in place right now to deal with something like that is mass slaughter of animals, and if they had to slaughter six million livestock in England, it'd be many times that. This country would require probably digging a ditch, according to one exercise scenario, 25 miles long, <laughs> you know, to put all the carcasses in. So, you know, I, I got to thinking, all right, here's a, here's a very contagious viral disease that would certainly hammer our economy. Uh, it would cause social unrest, people watching, you know, mass funeral pyres of burning carcasses and that sort of thing. Um, what if this was a zoonotic disease? What if it was a, a, a disease that was asymptomatic uh, in animals uh, but could be transmissible to humans uh, with potentially devastating consequences? And in fact, there are you know, no shortage of right. zoonotic diseases out there. Something like 70% of the, of the major diseases of humans are ultimately zoonotic. And, and we went by this without defining it. Essentially, a zoonotic disease is something that can be transferred from an animal. From an animal to, to a yeah. human. That, that's correct, yeah. Like anthrax, yeah. you know, like right. things yeah. like those. That's the one that people know, Zika and others like that, yeah. too. Even, yeah, as you, as you point out, even those that are vectored by insects. Right. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what... Because I would, I would think that there are possibly two ways that a genetically modified disease could be very scary, and that would be taking uh, a deadly disease that already is very bad and make it zoonotic, yeah. but also maybe taking a relatively benign zoonotic disease and making it deadly, yeah. you know, kind of juicing up something that we can catch from animals that maybe just make us sick, but making yeah. it actually genetically modified to kill us. Yeah. Sounds like you ought to write a novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I read yours, so now I think I know stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that is a huge concern, especially with the new gene editing technologies. And, you know, the, the, the concern that I have, and it's certainly not unique <laughs> in my part, a lot of scientists have this concern, is that the, uh, the science is leaps and bounds ahead of the, of the public policy. Uh, and there are two components of that. One is that the the, the science and the technology is moving so fast, and the other is that the public is woefully ignorant mm -hmm. uh, about uh, what could happen, let alone you know what should be done about it. And uh, so, if you consider the potential uh, for altering the genome with these new gene editing technologies uh, of, as you say, you know, potentially benign uh, pathogen, uh, and uh, making it highly infectious, uh, making it uh, you know lethal. Uh, then um, I don't know how we would contain it. Yeah. I really don't. Uh, and I don't know how long it will be before we come up with effective public policy uh, that would uh, you know, keep this in check. Yeah, sleep tight, kids. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I saw interesting as I was doing research for not only this but other things is that there are now people having conversations because of our knowledge of the DNA genome, knowledge of how different markers work for different ethnic groups, that you could potentially bioengineer a weapon that would only kill, let's say, Arabs or Asians or Caucasians and release it to everybody. I mean, I'm thinking more of like the, the Stuxnet virus, which is the computer virus that infected every Siemens processor in the world, but only turned itself on when it had a very particular set of circumstances and that happened to be an Iranian centrifuge. Hmm. It seems like, in what I've read, that that is not too far in the future where we could we, I'm not saying the United States is going to do it, but somebody bad mm -hmm. could genetically modify a virus to only attack certain ethnic groups or certain mm -hmm. age groups or certain mm -hmm. demographics. Mm -hmm. Is that something that is worrying people? 
That is not something I've thought about. Oh, sorry. Uh, but, <laughs> but I'm going to think about it now. Yeah, sorry about that. Um... I, I, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, a terrifying prospect. Uh, and I could see that it, uh, it could be uh, scientifically achievable. Well, yeah. let, me, let me flip this around. Can, yeah. can genetic modification actually be the solution to the problem? I, I mean, I, I saw that there are programming yeast and bacteria that make medicines. I mean, I know that... That's what they did to create insulin in the first place back decades ago. Right. Um, but could you also do DNA, DNA modification to train the immune system to defend against foot and mouth disease? Yeah, right? and I think you know, with things like CRISPR-Cas9, uh, you know, gene editing technology has tremendous potential uh, for good, uh, and could be used, you know, for for uh, uh, applications such as what you suggested. I don't think there's any question about that. I think that's why the technology is going to move ahead so quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be advanced and supported, um, including with federal funding, I'm sure, uh, on the basis of, you know, the potential enormous biomedical benefits that can occur. Uh, but it's obviously a two-edged sword. Yeah, you, you mentioned federal funding, and that was actually yep. my next quick, great segue. <laughs> you talked about how the public is ignorant about this, and I assume mm -hmm. that includes many members of Congress who yep. don't have scientific background. I mean, we, we actually talk about this with cyber all the time, yep. right? There, there are very few people in Congress understand how computers work, understand how cyber works. I bet even less understand bioweapons. Yep. Um, is there the money? from the federal government available to do the kind of necessary research, the kind of necessary preparations. Uh, it's more than just finding cures, it's preparing cities, it's preparing states, it's preparing people like FEMA and others to, to do a massive outbreak. Is there the proper uh, national priority to bioweapons defense from your perspective? Well, I think there, there are two, two aspects to an answer to that question. Uh, the first is you know, the public support uh, for the funding, and as you point out, uh, as I mentioned, you know the public is very, very ignorant of science in general, uh, let alone some of these new scientific technologies that that have the potential for both good and evil. Uh, and why is that? Well, there's a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which is the public has a very short attention span, and they they like their their information and short sound bites mm -hmm. and so on. And in fact, I'm talking this afternoon at, at Georgetown uh, about. Um, the responsibility and the opportunity of scientists uh, to more effectively communicate uh, to public audiences uh, some of these issues. And not all scientists are, you know, comfortable with communicating, but most scientists are, are very good at communicating in writing, and many of them are good at, at communicating orally. Uh, but the, the problem has been that that has not necessarily been perceived as part of their of their mission, right. but we absolutely need to encourage scientists uh, to communicate effectively and succinctly, but accurately, um, the science, the science uh, advancements that are taking place, and their potential both for good mm -hmm. and for nefarious purposes. So there is that, and so Congress ultimately needs to be the recipient of public if not pressure, at least public encouragement mm -hmm. uh, to provide more funding uh, for programs that not only allow us to develop the right kinds of technologies, uh, but also to make sure that we develop the right kinds of policies to keep these technologies managed right. effectively. Now, the other half of the, of, the, of the question is the money itself. 
And you know, my my experience has been with USDA, and I can say that absolutely, it's been a challenge in USDA to get sufficient funding for the research that might be called uh, uh, counterterrorism research or biodefense research to protect food and agriculture. Very challenging because mm-hmm. you know my agency, which is the research the the, the in-house research agency, the one that I worked for, the Agricultural Research Service, has a, a, a budget of about a billion dollars, and that's a drop in the bucket right. compared to, say, NIH. And that covers a whole lot of, 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 of different applications, everything from you know environmental research to production, plants, animals, nutrition, mm-hmm. et cetera. And so you sort of winnow that down and how much of it is going into biodefense, and it's not a lot. Right. Uh, and, um, and yet... It, that's where you're going to get the support for development of vaccines and biologicals, uh, where you're going to get the support for better detection technologies, uh, for monitoring, for surveillance, uh, and for communication. And, um, you know, there's just not a lot of money there. Now, there is another whole part of, of USDA research, which is carried out by primarily the land-grant university system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that research, even though a lot of it's funded by the federal government, uh, is, you know, carried out at individual universities and not necessarily in partnership with the scientists at the, at the, at the Agricultural Research Service. But even adding that in, you're talking, what, a couple billion dollars or right. something like that. Now, NIH, uh, and, and I don't you know, know enough about the, the budgeting at NIH to be able to give you a, a good answer on that, uh, but certainly um, a lot of the research at NIH obviously is in support of the development of new, uh, everything from new therapies to disease prevention and so on. And I'm wondering, and I don't know the answer to this, um, you know, what sorts of conversations need to take place at the congressional level to help us not only identify priorities uh, for funding for biodefense, but also to encourage better coordination across agencies. That's a great, yeah. Right? And also uh, to ensure better accountability uh, for the funds that are invested. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. So a couple of days ago, former Department of Homeland Security Secretary Tom Ridge and former Senator Joe Lieberman wrote an op-ed for Time about 
biodefense and it was not all that positive. And one of the, the real uh, significant arguments I thought they made was that we still lack a centralized leadership to coordinate not only prevention and response, but also like how to plan this, how to coordinate this. Because as you show in the book and, and as it would happen in real life, this would be an all hands on deck, you know, from FEMA to USDA to the military to intelligence agencies to especially if it was bioterrorism, you'd have the FBI. And you look back at something, I'm thinking of a natural disaster, like the response to Deepwater Horizon, the oil spill, where there was 20 different agencies and nobody knew who was in charge. And it was yeah. a complete disaster. It seems like we're still in that same boat here. And they even said that. In 2010, a report from a bipartisan commission on the proliferation of mass destruction had given the country an F grade, meaning A, B, C, D, F, for readiness against a bioterrorism attack. And that's problematic because it seems like the risk has only increased with weapons being now much easier to develop with, with kind of DNA sequences and other things like that. And you've seen people like people, uh, organizations like ISIS, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get their hands on biological weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, why aren't we getting our act together on this? I, I, I know that's a, what's a rhetorical question. Maybe it's way too big to answer. Yeah. Um, but it seems like the evidence is there for us to start taking this seriously. I mean, one, I'll let you answer, sorry again, James Stavridis, who is a former four-star admiral, NATO Supreme Allied Commander, who was somebody that was yeah, thrown around for being potentially in Trump's cabinet, yeah. says that the 21st century is going to be determined not by cybernetic threats, right. but by biological threats. Right. It seems like the right people are yelling very loudly. Yeah. What's it going to take for the people that matter to, to make a decision to do something about this? Well, I'll answer from the perspective of my own experience, and it's not as negative uh, as that. Um, my, my, my assessment is not as negative as that. Um, as well, I, that's good, thank God, because... Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I'll tell you the pros and cons sort of from my, my point of view. You know, as I said, before 9-11, looking just the, the food and agriculture side, agriculture wasn't recognized as a critical national infrastructure. Uh, after 9-11, obviously, there, were a lot, there was a lot of scrambling, and the Department of Homeland Security was, was stood up, and we passed a, we, we enacted a, a Homeland Security presidential directive that was specifically focused on food and agriculture. And the Department of Homeland Security has the overall coordination role, not only for, you know, bioterrorism in general, but for agricultural uh, food protection of food and agriculture, even though the, sort of the rubber hits the road at the at the agency, the USDA mm -hmm. itself. So there is that overall coordination role. Uh, also, uh, the number of different agencies that were sort of going off in their own directions before 9/11 have coalesced uh, to a fairly uh, effective uh, degree. Uh, in addition. And this is a huge part of it, and it's, I'm sure it, it's true of, of cyber terrorism as well. We can't forget the private sector. Mm. You know, the private sector is ultimately the responsible entity uh, for protecting citizens right. uh, you know, from products that they sell. Right. And um, the private sector uh, and the federal agencies with regard to agro-terrorism were not communicating before 9-11. Okay. There are now mechanisms in place, there are programs in place, there are requirements in place uh, that uh, bring that uh, coordination together. Uh, and it's, you know, it's been rocky. Uh, I bring in uh, representatives from the private sector to talk to my class. 
and you know, I always ask them, you know, we won't quote you on it, but what do you what do you think? How's it working with the with with the federal government? And you get a uh, a diplomatic, but <laughs> somewhat somewhat uh, uh, you know muted response mm -hmm. about that. And it's it it works well to some extent. Uh, but nowhere near as effectively. And you can think of all the reasons why. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's everything from proprietary information, and you know, if you're if you're a Purdue Farms or or, or right. Mars Corporation, you're not necessarily going to want to share what you're doing with the rest of the world. Uh, so there is all that. But I, I would say that we've made a lot of progress. There's one thing that I absolutely think we ought to be doing uh, that we're not doing enough, from what I can tell, and that would apply across the board with, with bioterrorism, and that is to bring people from different entities, federal agencies, state agencies, first responders, private sector, together physically right. and carry out some exercises, all right? I think it's really, really, really critical. And I've been involved in a couple of these, and you know, more than anything else, I, I really believe this, the most effective thing you can do in a rapid and effective response is to have people that know each other right. up front. You can pick up the phone. You can call the, the guy that's the uh, you know the, the the sort of key person in the Department of Agriculture in the state of North Carolina, and say, "Hey, Joe, you know, we got this issue here. We think it might be a threat to you know." And right. you'll know each other, right? And that comfort level, that having worked together and having practiced, you know responses to some scenarios, let alone how to prevent them in the first place, I think is incredibly effective. Well, and something I thought found interesting in the book, actually, that I never thought about before, because I've, I've thought about bioterrorism before. I've read a lot about uh, development of biological weapons just because of my background. But things like you need meteorologists mm -hmm. to talk about wind patterns. So, you know, airborne viruses, you need to understand how they're going to spread. You need mm -hmm. people who you wouldn't consider you know, off you know, off the top of your head to be essential elements to any kind of defense against this. Right. Um, and I, I didn't think of that. I can't imagine that an average person, especially a, a like a FEMA person or a, even a, a a military person, is thinking, "Boy, we need to know which way the wind's going." And, right. and certainly, back in the fifties, they would have thought that because yeah. of fallout and everything else. Yeah. But that, to me, I was surprised. I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And that was something yeah. that was in your book that jumped out. I'm like, oh, yeah. a meteorologist. And there are two other things that we yeah. need. We need social scientists, and I'll, I'll come to that in a second. Yeah. And we need people who know how to communicate and how to coach other people in how to communicate. Because the message has to be clear and consistent and, to the extent possible, comforting. Um, it can't be dishonest because yeah. people see right through it. But you've got to make sure that you get the word out accurately and that everybody is on the same page with the message and that you've thought about this ahead of time and you have teams in place that can do that. But going back to the social scientists uh, issue or the social uh, people who, who, who help uh, uh, manage the, the, the social aspects of something like an out, outbreak, uh, I was the um, acting director of a horticultural uh, research lab in, in Florida uh, back in 2000, uh, USDA ARS, Agricultural Research Service, and Florida was experiencing, experiencing an outbreak of citrus canker, a devastating you know, bacterial 
disease. I was okay. there. Were you I there? Know. Yeah. All right. My family's from Miami, so okay. lost all our trees. Yeah. Well, so here's yeah. the problem, yeah. all right? One of the scientists in our lab, uh, an excellent, uh, you know, epidemiologist, uh, plant epidemiologist, uh, laid out a very strong foundation, scientific foundation, for an argument uh, that the containment zone uh, for the detection of a single case of citrus canker ought to be expanded from what? I think it was a few hundred feet to 1,900 feet, all right? And that was then adopted uh, by the state of Florida and uh, APHIS, uh, you know, the, the USDA Animal Plant Health Inspection System, and that became the requirement. So if you had a single infected tree, then every citrus tree within 1,900 feet had to be destroyed. Which was every tree in Florida. Well, there's yeah. a lot of trees, <laughs> but it started out, you know, uh, Broward County, yeah. Miami, that, 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 that area. Uh, but what was not recognized or appreciated at the time was that a lot of citrus trees in Broward County and Miami are sort of heirloom family trees that are planted in the backyards of homeowners, in many cases, in honor of somebody in their mm -hmm. family who had died. And so all of a sudden you then had the federal government coming in saying, we're cutting your tree down, you know. And there had been no adequate rollout of communications ahead of time. And as a result of that, um, it was challenged in court. And a judge in Broward County basically called a halt uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the tree uh, destruction program uh, because of the public outcry. And as a, in part because of that, and there were other factors, uh, citrus canker was not contained and spread throughout Florida. Yeah. Now they got issues with another yeah. disease now sort of screening. But, you know, and that's a very good example, it seems to me, of if, if you don't get the, the social yep. part of it right up front and don't communicate effectively and get people on board, and you can't do this as soon as a disease breaks out. You've got to be thinking about it ahead of time. And I go, that goes back to the question of exercise. Yeah, and that's the most chilling part of your book. And I, and I think that when people read it, they'll, they'll understand this as well, is uh, while a biological attack would be bad when it comes to people who have died, the social disruption would be potentially far worse. And I think that when, the, you know, at 3 a.m. when there's lights on at the Pentagon, when there's the people who are thinking about WMDs aren't necessarily thinking about how many thousands are going to die. They're thinking about what they'd have to do after an outbreak. Um, and that's everything from containment, you know, where you bring in the National Guard to ask citizen soldiers to shoot people who are leaving certain areas. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also things like medical services. You know, doctors and nurses are not immune to these diseases. And if you're a smart bioterrorist, and I hope you thought about this already, bioterrorist, I'm not giving you ideas, the doctors and the nurses would be your first target. Um, and and then the ideas of martial law. And, and in the book, you, you show that the communication was a real problem. Um, and, the, you know, thinking about how to maintain societal norms and societal systems uh, could be the real problem here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I just... You know, one of the scenarios in my book is that you have this sort of buffer zone mm -hmm. around the initial containment zone where you depopulate. Uh, and that's not far-fetched. That was done uh, not for people, uh, but for uh, livestock uh, in Holland uh, when, when the UK outbreak occurred in 2001. So it did spread over to the continent. 
uh, and uh, you know the Netherlands uh, did set up a sort of a perimeter zone, which they basically you know depopulated. Well, they also you know vaccinated with the a vaccine that was available at the time, even though it couldn't you know the the, the presence of the of the of the vaccine itself did not allow people to distinguish between whether the animal had been exposed right. to foot and mouth or whether it was the vaccine, but they weren't concerned about that to the degree that we are because of our export market, you know. And so that idea of an outer perimeter of whatever you do with it, depopulation, or if you have a good vaccine, fine, uh, you know, is important. Uh, but we don't have that, uh, you know, for something uh, that, that potentially has no vaccine, no effective antidotes, and yeah. we have to respond to in a hurry. So I, you know, I think we... Well, and your book takes place in a relatively rural area. I can only imagine trying to run this in a city yeah, yeah. Uh, where you would have to displace a million people, perhaps, yeah, yeah. Um, and the kind of social unrest that would be the, the, co- yeah. would, the would result of that, yeah. um, where hospitals are overwhelmed, where medical workers would be sick. Yeah. And then it's near impossible, you would think, to be able to get new aid to new supplies yeah. within these infected areas. Yeah. Um, or food. Or food, yeah. yeah. And the, the U.S. military is not designed to police its own people right. and to, I mean, I, I'm, I'm ex-Army. I, I spent many years thinking, you know, about killing other people. But I can't imagine if I was sent to Miami mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and told that if any, if a, a bus of school kids tries to run the roadblock, I have mm-hmm. to shoot with them a tank, mm-hmm. I might hesitate. Or if I did it, I would be... be gone forever. Well, and that's I mean, another uh, issue. Yeah. I mean, if posse comitatus, you, yeah. know, you, 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 you can't, I mean, maybe you could use the National Guard. Yeah, you should be able to use the National Guard, but the active duty military, you couldn't. And yet yeah. the National Guard resources are, you know, relatively small compared right. to the active duty military. That, those are huge questions, uh, but they're important right. questions because one way or another, we've got to be able to contain something like that as quickly as possible. And it's much better to ask these questions now than it is when you start to think that you have an outbreak. It is, yeah. Well, and and my last kind of focus is on um, something you mentioned before. It's kind of the the fear of this, and you talked about the fear out there. And I'm thinking back to the anthrax scare after 9-11, where if you don't know, anthrax uh, envelopes with anthrax were sent to members of the press and several congressional offices. Um, and immediately people blamed Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Immediately people were looking for countries to bomb. It yeah. was Iraq. Yeah. And it turned out to be a disgruntled, well, we think, who knows at this yeah. point still, yeah. turned out to be a disgruntled uh, U.S. Uh, bioweapons yeah. researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the fear that yeah. created yeah. was extraordinary. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it's something just people don't understand it. Yeah. Anything you don't understand, you're going to yeah. be terrified of. Yeah. And you know, and, and people have had seventy plus years to understand nuclear weapons yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but bioweapons are something new to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and since you can't see it and yeah. you don't know a lot about it, yeah. the fear to me seems to be the overriding factor of what could be a real problem. And that's the whole issue of terror, isn't it? Yeah. You know, um, and 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 the unpredictability. And, and the fact, you know, that with biological agents, uh, it may be a matter of days uh, before symptoms show up, uh, let alone before you can determine what it is that's, that's causing the person to be sick. Uh, and, you know, just to, that uncertainty on the part of people, uh, you know, I can't imagine anything that would be more terrifying uh, than that, you know. 
I mean, it, it's you know certainly bad enough to go to a public place and worry about somebody blowing themselves up or something, uh, but that's not a contagious mm -hmm. sort of thing, you know. Uh, biological agent is. Well, Hank, thanks for scaring the hell out of us. Um, <laughs> Hank Parker is the author of the new novel Containment, a bioterrorism thriller, which is out now. Uh, if you have any interest in this uh, quite extraordinary field, this is a really good entry point. I think that uh, there's just enough science that it's realistic. There's just enough science that it kind of leads you to start thinking in certain directions. But I think it's completely accessible to anyone uh, as just a great thriller. Um, and it might give you some ideas about where to go next. And I think uh, um, I enjoyed it very much. Uh, again, we don't have a lot of novelists on here, but I, I felt that this was important to have this conversation with you. So, Hank, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Well, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.